0: Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at (music) personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: Until we can figure out how to do small-scale processing and small-scale distribution, we can't have small-scale farming. This week on our show,
0: we talk with IU professor Elizabeth Dunn, who has studied the meatpacking industry for more than a decade. She offers insights into the recent outbreaks of COVID-19 in meat processing plants and into the role of immigrant labor in our food system. Stay with us. Let's start with news from Renee Reed. Hello, Renee.
2: Hello, Kate. With soaring infection rates in agricultural industries, the state of Michigan ordered farms, meat plants, and camps for migrant workers to test all workers for the coronavirus in early August. Several Latino workers and two Michigan farms filed a lawsuit against the order saying that it unfairly targeted farms and Latino workers but a federal judge and the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the state's rule as constitutional. The parties filing the lawsuit last week moved to dismiss the case. The Michigan Farm Bureau backed the lawsuit, saying the order unfairly targets migrant workers and drove some workers away from Michigan. Many reports have indicated that migrant workers stayed in home countries this year due to high rates of infection and a lack of basic precaution on farms. The Michigan Immigrant Rights Center applauded the testing requirements and pledged to help curb, quote, the spread of misinformation and fear regarding the order's requirements. An attorney for the group, Diana Marin, told Civil Eats that the lawsuit, quote, created a false narrative that Latino workers don't want to get tested for COVID-19 and that they don't need this protection. U.S. dairy producers say they need better trade deals in order to return the industry to profitability. Milk and cheese exports are up 10 percent so far this year over last, but dairy farmers say that's not enough and they are losing out on opportunities. Jeff Swager is the CEO of Wisconsin-based Satori Cheese. He says tariffs are making it harder for his company to compete in overseas markets that are critical for growth. For the cheese we ship to Europe, we pay pay more in duty per per kilogram than the Europeans pay Export their cheese
0: to the United States. What's fair in that?
2: Swager says he would like to see the next presidential administration, Biden or Trump, to focus on bilateral trade deals with countries including Canada that would make U.S. dairy competitive against the European Union countries and New Zealand. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
0: The pandemic has revealed many things. Massive unemployment has exposed economic fragility and exacerbated poverty all over the country. Emergency food providers like food banks and food pantries cannot keep up with the increased demand for food. And food producers, from farm workers to meat processors to grocery store workers, have put their lives on the line to keep shelves stocked. While some like to frame this work as heroic, the conditions and the pay for laborers in our food system demonstrates that those in power often view them as expendable. Earlier this year, I spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, professor of geography at Indiana University. We met on the IU campus, and with our microphones spaced more than six feet apart, we talked about her research on the meatpacking industry and the refugees who process America's meat supply. Dunn's research in meat packing started more than 15 years ago.
1: I became really interested in the question of consolidation, how and why particular industries consolidated really fast. And meat packing is a great example of that. It was widely distributed in America until the 60s and then became rapidly consolidated outside of cities where People couldn't see the conditions of the meatpacking plants and where there was an easily exploitable pool of low-wage labor. Much of her research
0: was in Eastern Europe, which was just going through the process of consolidation. She'd done research in Poland and had planned to study the issue in Georgia when the Russians invaded and conducted an ethnic cleansing campaign, sending all the farmers she had planned to work with into refugee camps. Listeners might remember a previous Earth Eats interview with Elizabeth Dunn on food in the refugee camps at the border of South Ossetia.
1: And what I became interested in then was refugee resettlement in the United States, and I've served on the executive board of Exodus Refugee Immigration in Indianapolis. I became really interested in who was coming through the, the refugee resettlement process and how they were fitting into American society here in Indiana.
0: Refugee resettlement agencies like Exodus work with refugees to help them find employment.
1: Exodus is not placing in meatpacking, but other agencies in Indiana are. Um, There's a big concentration at Logansport and other meatpacking plants. So that's kind of where my two interests began to cross. So I'm really interested in finding out more about the ways that the shutdown of the refugee Pipeline has affected meat packers.
0: I asked Elizabeth Dunn if she could talk about how refugees became
1: such a large part of the labor force in meat processing. It's kind of a long story, actually, which starts in the early 2000s when most of the meat plants in this country employed Mexican workers who had varying statuses. And many of them were undocumented, many of them were working on false documents. And in 2006, there was an immigration raid coordinated on six SWIFT meatpacking plants and the SWIFT raids. And the SWIFT raids arrested about 1,300 people. They did not arrest any of the officials at SWIFT who had probably knowingly hired these people, um, even though they were undocumented. But it had a hugely disruptive effect on communities, for one thing, because I think this was Christmas Eve in Greeley, Colorado. They're rounding people up and taking them away from their children. It was just a brutal scene. And it shut the meatpacking plant down for days. In the meatpacking industry, those lines process thousands of animals a day. So when that line shuts down, it costs millions of dollars a day to have that line not running. And it usually runs three shifts a day, so it runs almost 24 hours a day. This put the meat industry in a real bind, which is, you know, how are they going to get somebody to do a job which is dangerous? It is, um, according to Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the most dangerous job in America. It is dirty. It is smelly. It is miserable. I mean, it's just an incredibly hard job. And how are you going to get somebody to do this job for 15 bucks an hour? So the meatpackers were looking for a source of easily exploitable labor that could be underpaid. And they turned to refugees. In the Greeley plant, it was mostly Somali refugees. In other meat plants, it's very often Burmese workers. Chicken still tends to have a lot of people from Mexico. Again, mostly undocumented. There was another raid. I don't know, three or four months ago, that turned up a lot of undocumented chicken workers. But in beef and pork, it's largely refugees. They're perfectly legal to work, but they have very low language skills, so they can't work at any job that requires them to speak English. They have very few alternatives. And when they come to this country, they have 90 days of support from the federal government, and then it ends. So 90 days is not a lot of time to get yourself set up and running in a new country. And so um, it was seemed like a match made in heaven, right? You had this group of people who was desperate for work. You had very low unemployment rates in the United States, so it was hard to hire anybody else. And you had meatpackers who were willing to pay 15, even 20 bucks an hour for people to work in the plants. So a lot of resettlement agencies came to... Um, set up shop in these towns. So they became a direct chain, so f- supplying labor to the plants. So if you look at Greeley, it's a federally approved resettlement site. There's a resettlement agency there, which is getting people who are sent by the State Department to them. And then those people are being placed by the resettlement agency in the meatpacking plant. So it's been an extraordinarily reliable source of labor for the meatpackers until the Trump administration.
0: I asked Elizabeth Dunn to define refugee status.
1: To be a refugee, in this case, we're talking about a very narrow definition. You have to meet the criteria of a refugee under international law, which means you have crossed an international border, uh, largely due to war. You have to have come through a camp where the United Nations High Commission for Refugees was active UNHCR passes the names of eligible refugees to the U.S. State Department, which runs them through vetting by 13 federal agencies. It's an incredibly elaborate process. And then they arrive here in the United States. The last year of the Obama administration, we resettled about 110,000 refugees in this country. So given that there are 71 million refugees and internally displaced people, this is a very small number. But uh, 110,000 was, give or take, around the average of what the U.S. has resettled historically. And that 110,000 was a great population to run through these meatpacking plants for the meatpackers. Not so great for the refugees. Now that is down, this year's quota, I think, was 28,000. And there was a complete shut off of the refugee pipeline at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak. So I think... In this fiscal year, which started in October, we've to date brought in less than 10,000 refugees. So the numbers are dropping phenomenally. And finding people that will do these jobs and live under the really gruesome conditions that people have to live in, in these meatpacking towns, that's incredibly difficult. So what's happening now is that although Trump issued an order Mandating that the meatpacking plants stay open, I don't think they can. If their workers are sick or their workers are too afraid to get sick that they won't show up for work, there is no one to replace them. So the plants can't help but shut down. And we're seeing the enormous fragility of the U.S. meat supply chain. I asked Professor Dunn to clarify, are these workers
0: asylum seekers from Central America? Are they agricultural workers here on H-2A visas? And she said that while there are immigrants from Latin America working in the meat processing
1: industry, refugee status is different. The refugee population is coming in through a completely different route. This is an entirely different group of people, very, very few of whom are from uh, Latin America. The biggest groups coming into the country uh, have been Burmese. Indiana and Indianapolis has one of the biggest Burmese populations in the country, actually. Chin Burmese, mostly. They're Burmese, they're Somalis. Up until the Trump administration came, they were Afghans, Syrians. There's also Sudanese. Both the Somalis and the Sudanese are coming in through camps in Kenya. So that's where we're seeing the biggest population draws from.
0: I asked about the possibility for social distancing for these workers.
1: It's very difficult for, I mean, people work in very close quarters particularly on a kill floor, and it's very difficult to socially distance that. When you have an an assembly line or a disassembly line, you know, there are fixed stations along it and you've got to achieve certain number of tasks per meter of line. You can't change that or the plant's not functioning. But the bigger issue is not just in the workplace. The bigger issue has also been the housing conditions for these people, which are incredibly run down. Um, these towns are just dilapidated the housing is a very low quality and they're living six eight ten people in a house trying to save money so it's the way they're living closely together that also makes it impossible to distance
0: so the housing is substandard and could you talk a little bit of about- more about the job itself. You said it was really dangerous. Are there already high rates of injury and people needing to take time off? And- yes,
1: there are incredibly high rates of injury in this industry because you're, I mean, you're working with tools which are designed to cut flesh, right? That's what a meat saw does. Um, that is what a boning knife does. And in, in many of these plants, you're disassembling a cow every six seconds, a carcass is coming by you and you have to perform whatever your task is, sawing it in half or cutting off the tenderloin or whatever part of the slaughter you're doing, Um, you have six or ten seconds to do it. So people are moving very fast with very sharp implements. The other kinds of things we find are repetitive motion injuries, muscle strain, tendon strain, You know, people's bodies just wear out doing very heavy physical labor. I think it's a job with incredibly high turnover. Also, people try and get out of this job because it's so unpleasant to do and so dangerous. The Trump administration has a massive disconnect going on. You know, So on the one hand, they're saying meat workers are essential workers, meatpacking workers need to be protected, we need to safeguard the U.S. food supply, get in there and get to work. And on the other hand, they're saying we don't like refugees, refugees are foreigners, refugees are dangerous. You know, they are literally willing to cut off immigration and they don't see that they're also cutting off their own labor source for an industry they want to protect. We had, up until the coronavirus, a 3% unemployment rate. It's one of the lowest rates historically in the history of this country. And then we cut off almost all of our supply of agricultural labor. Who is going to pick the avocados? Who do they think is picking strawberries? Who do they think is sawing apart chickens, you know, or collecting eggs or killing cattle? These are, this is all work done by immigrants. And if you decide that you're going to be anti-immigrant because they're quote-unquote stealing American jobs, you have completely lost out on the fact that these are jobs that Americans refuse to do. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with IU professor
0: Elizabeth Dunn. We'll be back with more from our conversation after a short break. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.Studio. Insurance agent, Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected, more at BillRushInsurance.com. And Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. I'm Kate Young you're listening to Earth Eats and we're speaking today with Elizabeth Dunn professor of geography at Indiana University. We're talking about one of her fields of study the meat processing industry in the US. I asked Professor Dunn if she thought it was possible for meat packing plants to operate safely to prevent the spread of coronavirus infection.
1: I think that the meat packers will will put a lot of effort into finding ways to do that because they have no choice. But um, when you're talking about working in a hot, loud, dirty environment, finding PPE that that will keep people safe is quite difficult. So, you know, we would be talking about plexiglass visors. We would be talking about regular mask and glove changeouts. And none of this really changes the fact that those people could be getting sick at home because they cannot isolate. It's not really an available choice. When you live in a house with 10 or 12 people, you can't really isolate yourself. The meatpacking workers themselves are in a real jam. The other thing they're in a real jam about is that for many of them, they're trying to support families. They're trying to send money back home. So they're really caught between a a rock and a hard place. What do they do? I mean, either they fail financially, um, in which case their immigration status is put in jeopardy because it'll be hard to apply for a green card and citizenship if you're using any kind of public assistance. Or they risk their lives and they go and get sick. These people don't have a choice. They, they really have to work if they're able to work. And they can't work from home, obviously. And we're asking them to risk their lives. And I think it says something about how the current administration feels about their lives, which is to say they see them as disposable.
0: Do you think that meatpacking is an essential Service.
1: Well, I think meatpacking is certainly, as it stands right now, an integral part of the United States' food supply chain. You know, it's certainly possible for people to be vegetarians, but um, but one of the things that politicians, including Senator or uh, Representative Trey Hollingsworth, has said that it's worth some deaths to protect the American way of life. And certainly, protecting the standard American diet has been seen as an integral part of protecting the American way of life. So whose deaths are we willing to risk to maintain our ability to eat meat? It's certainly a big question, and I think we will start to see real gaps in the meat supply chain showing up. And people are going to have to really think about the ways that they use meat in a way that Americans, who have a traditionally very meat-heavy diet, have not had to think about before.
0: I brought up something we heard about in our news report today. With processing plants closed, farmers have had to euthanize animals.
1: The American meat supply chain depends on animals moving very, very quickly through the process from birth to death. There is no farmer who can continue to feed animals without having them move out into a slaughterhouse. And what we have seen has been um, the wholesale slaughter of animals for whom there is no buyer. I asked about the impossible
0: situation of farmers with animals that cannot be processed. There's this chain that's already in motion of these animals that are being raised, and it's their time to go to the slaughterhouse, and if the production plant is closed down, then then they all have to be killed and wasted, and you can't put workers' lives on the line, and it just feels like such a
1: dilemma. Oh, yeah, it's such a dilemma. And, And the other people it really threatens at least economically are farmers and ranchers who themselves are very often working on contracts. So they have borrowed the money. They got a contract from the slaughterhouse. They have borrowed the money for the chickens or the pigs or the cows, and they are feeding them knowing that they'll have a purchase price at the end. And all of a sudden there's nobody to purchase them. So those, those people are really in a panic state this is an enormous financial investment, which again depends on animals moving down the chain. And when the chain stops, it costs everybody millions and millions of dollars. I think we're in this strange balance point where the question is sort of whose lives do we put in jeopardy to keep the economy going so that other people can survive financially. And I take that dilemma extraordinarily seriously. I... I don't think you can just write it off and say, well, shut everything down. Um, Because you have other people whose lives and livelihoods depend on that chain moving. But I I understand that there is a federal order telling the plants to stay open. I don't think they're going to be able to do it. And if I was a refugee, I wouldn't be going to work. So now we're really on the horns of a dilemma. You know, we've seen milk being poured down drains. We've seen eggs being thrown away. Because there are no buyers for them, even though we have food shortages, because they were heading into the institutional market and the chain is different. And so now we're going to see meat wasted in the same way because there's just no way to process it and get it to consumers. This is crazy. We produce more food than anyone else in the world. It's piling up and we're destroying it while we have people who can't afford food. Yeah, it's really a dilemma. I, I think one of the things this tells us is how fragile our society as a whole is. And one of the big reckonings I think we're going to have to do in the food system after this pandemic is thinking about how we backstop that fragility by having multiple chains, multiple methods of getting food to consumers, multiple pathways for harvesting, for processing, for delivering. Uh, And we have up until now been so focused on consolidating those systems that we didn't realize that while we were making them more efficient, we were also making them incredibly fragile. Right now, about 95% of American beef is produced by one of three companies because they're getting economies of scale in these giant meatpacking plants. But again, to get that economy of scale, you've got to be able to put 3,000 workers in a plant. And right now we can't do that. So the question is, do we start planning for disruption, which clearly because of climate change, because of political reasons, is going to be more and more frequent? We'll have another wave of pandemic. Are we going to start planning for that kind of social resilience now in the food system? Or are we going to stay on this consolidation track knowing that we could have a shutdown? Mm -hmm. If we want a distributed food system, and here I think the goal is not just farming, Everybody thinks about farming. It's processing. You can't have distributed farming until you have distributed processing because large processing firms are built to take in animals or grain or vegetables from large-scale producers. They won't take in odd little batches of five pigs or 10 Mm -hmm. pigs or a cow or two, right? You need these little small slaughterhouses that can do that work. And to do that, you have to reduce all of the barriers that they face in terms of regulation while still keeping the food supply safe. And until we can figure out how to do small-scale processing and small-scale distribution, we can't have small-scale farming on a wide scale. And open up the gates in some controlled, reasonable way to farm workers who engage in circular migrations and to... Uh, processing plant workers and meatpacking workers who need livable conditions in order to do that job. And, and that's a, a big question of reforming the, not just the infrastructure, not just the plants, but also reforming labor laws and immigration laws in ways that are not reactive, um, that aren't simply anti-immigrant and aren't open borders either, but are talking about carefully planned ways that we allow immigrants to enter into our food system because we need them if we want to eat. There's this saying about never let a good crisis go to waste, and that has been used sort of infamously for nefarious purposes. But here we have a crisis that we could actually use for good if we figure out what it requires to have a flexible, resilient, distributed rather than consolidated food system. And clearly, if we want to continue having a reliable food system in a post-pandemic America, we need to start pushing for those kinds of reforms as, as voters.
0: That was Elizabeth Dunn, professor of geography at Indiana University. Find out more about her work at eartheats.org. Now you can stay in touch between episodes. Subscribe to the new Earth Eats Digest for extra stories, photos, links, and more. Go to eartheats.org to sign up.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.
0: Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Dunn.
2: Production support comes from
0: Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.Studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillReschInsurance.com.